We have been doing the series that we're calling Legacy, and uh, we've been talking about this the last couple of weeks. Let me give you a, a definition again for legacy. So legacy is something such as a tradition or a problem that exists as a result of something that's happened in the past, something or someone that, something that someone has achieved that continues to exist after they stop working or die. And so we've been talking about this last couple of weeks that that legacy is something that you are going to leave. One way or another, you're going to leave a legacy. The only question is, what type of legacy are you going to leave? And when we talk about legacy, for us to really leave a godly legacy, it's going to require faith on your part. Because what God has in store for you and for me is something that goes beyond what you can do in the natural. It's going to go beyond your abilities. It's going to go beyond your talents. It's going to go beyond your resources because what God has for you, it's way beyond what you can do just by yourself. Look at this in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 20. I'm going to read it to you out of the Amplified Bible. It says this, Now to him who is able to carry out his purpose and do super abundantly more than all we dare ask or think, infinitely beyond our greatest prayers, hopes, or dreams. Listen, folks, I want to stir you up just a little bit here this afternoon because there's more that God wants to do in and through your life. Come on, tell your neighbor there's more. There's more. And I want to stir that up in you here today. But notice how that more is going to take place in your life. Look at the next phrase. According to his power that is at work within us. Now look at this, because God wants to insert himself into your story. He wants to insert himself into your life in such a way that it will take you beyond what you can do. It'll take you beyond what you can even imagine. Verse 21, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Now notice the reason why God wants to do more in and through your life. And that is because he wants to get the glory. He wants to get the glory for it. Think about that. Because if, all, if how you live your life is it's, it's, it's within the restraints of your talents, within the restraints of your abilities, within the strength, restraints of your resources, but if that's how you live your life, then who gets the glory? I do. That's exactly right. You do. I, we, we get the glory because it's, it's doing it through what I have. It's doing through what, what's going on. But God says, I want to take you beyond what you can do so that... He gets the glory. Because when it's beyond you, when it's beyond your talents, when it's beyond your resources, when it's beyond your abilities, then you can't take the glory for it. Only God can, and that's what he wants to do in our lives. And look at the next verse, which happens to be the next chapter, Ephesians 4, verse 1. Apostle Paul says, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Now follow this, because Apostle Paul says he's, he's describing who God is. That God is able to do exceedingly, abundantly beyond what you could ever imagine, hope, or think. He's bigger than what you think. He's bigger than what you can imagine. And what he has for you will boggle your mind because it's so much bigger than that. And so as a result, then the Apostle Paul says, I urge you. He says, I'm urging you. Don't just suck air while you're on this planet. Don't just go through this life in some sort of ordinary way. Actually make a difference. Then here's the thing. You need to know you're called. 
That's what the Apostle Paul said. You're called to live beyond the ordinary. It's actually a call on your life. God has called you to this. So as long as there's breath in your lungs, as long as your heart is beating, God is not finished with you yet. Come on, you need to hear that. God's not finished with you yet. And there are things that God has called you to to accomplish. But when I think about this, my concern for every single one of us is that we end up in just ordinary living. That's my concern for us, is that we just end up in ordinary living, just attainable. I know I can do this. I got this. But that's the kind of life that we're living. And so I want to stir you up just a bit today to live an extraordinary life. To live a life beyond the ordinary because I fully believe God's created you and he's called you to live an extraordinary life. Not because you're necessarily extraordinary. Come on, give your neighbor an elbow. Okay? It's not just because you're extraordinary. I mean, you are, you are fantastic people, but it's because God is extraordinary. He's the one who is extraordinary and it's his power that he wants to work in you and in me that will take you beyond what you ever think is possible. But the reality is that for some of us, we've fallen into the status quo. We've fallen into just the rut of living, the same old, same old, just going through the motions. And that's why I think for some of you, this is really a critical message. And it's a critical season for your life because Christianity for you has become predictable. Christianity for you has become even boring You've got this God thing figured out, but I'm telling you, folks, God wants to move you beyond that. He wants to move you beyond the ordinary. He wants to move you beyond just you sucking up air while you're here on this planet. There's more that he has for you. Have any of you ever heard of the Brooklyn Tabernacle Choir? Uh, um, the pastor of the church, Brooklyn Tabernacles, his name is Jim Cimbala, and he wrote this book, Fresh Wind, Fresh Fire, about 20 years ago, one of my favorite books, and because it describes what God can do within a church and a city, within actually a region. It kind of reads as kind of a, a miracle chronicling of all the things that God did, addictions, broken marriages, healed families, restored, souls saved, a city illuminated. But when I read this book 20 years ago, uh, there's something on page 22 that I want to read to you here that made this immutable impression in me that I've never been able to let go. Let me start here on page 20. Listen to these words. He writes, Every week seemed to carry with it a new challenge. The burner went out on the heating system and would cost $500 to repair. Unfortunately, my impassioned efforts as fundraiser mustered only $150 in pledges from the people. I thought more than ever about quitting. I'm not cut out for this, I told myself. I don't have that ministerial flair. I don't have a pastoral voice. I'm not an orator. I, I look too young. I'm so tired. Neither Carol nor I were, knew where to turn for support. My parents lived in another part of Brooklyn, but my father was battling alcoholism at that point, and my mother was consumed with the struggle. So we couldn't rely much on her for encouragement. The mother one of Carol's friends heard what we were doing and dropped by one Sunday. She didn't say it, but you could tell what she was thinking. What's a nice young couple like you doing down here? It didn't take long to discover that most middle-class white Christians in other parts of the city did not find our location or congregation very attractive. Some of the members we inherited were so out of step with the flavor of the church, so set up in their own agenda that I actually began to pray that they would leave. 
One man informed me that he too was ordained and should be allowed to preach on Sunday nights. When I, what I observed in his spiritual life, however, indicated just the opposite. Confrontation came hard because we could ill afford to lose people. But if these members were to stay, the result would be ongoing discord. And I knew the Lord would never bless that kind of a mess with the spiritual power we so desperately needed. One by one, these people made their exit. On a couple of occasions, I even had to help answer my own prayers by suggesting that members consider another church. In time, despite these defections, the congregation was no longer 20. It grew to 40 or 45. The finances remained touched and go. Friends sometimes left bags of groceries on our doorstep, for which we were grateful. My first year in Brooklyn, we received a total of $3,800 in salary. The national average income for a household our size was $14,000. The second year, we climbed all the way to $5,200. On more than one wintry Saturday night, I would think about the fact that attendance the next morning would probably be low because of the snow. We don't know what that is like here in Texas. See, when we lived in, I lived in Wisconsin, it seemed like every single Saturday night in the winter was a, was a blizzard. No, no fail. January, February, it seemed like there were blizzards every single Saturday during winter. And I, so I think that the attendance the next morning would probably be low because of the snow. Most of, most of our people couldn't afford cars. This would mean an even smaller offering. At such times, I wondered how I could possibly face another Sunday. I even hoped that by some miracle, the sun wouldn't come up the next morning. Carol started a little choir with a grand total of nine voices. But problems soon arose there, too. No sooner did the choir begin to sing in the meetings than one of our girls in it got pregnant out of wedlock. In a small congregation, everyone notices everything. Everyone talks about everything. After we had some Sunday night times of prayer around the altar, when people got into the habit of calling on the Lord, our attendance grew to 50 or 60. But I knew God wanted to do much more, and he would if we provided good soil in which he could work. I was tired of the escapist mentality I'd witnessed since childhood, always glorifying what God did way back in some revival, or else passionately predicting the coming great move of God just ahead. The truth is, I knew there were countless churches across the city and the nation that not baptized a hundred truly converted sinners in a year, and most not in several years. Any growth came simply through transfers from one church to another. New York City was a hard mission field, but transfer growth was not what God had in mind for us. What we needed instead was a fresh wind and fresh fire. We need the Holy Spirit to transform the desperate lives of people all around us. Alcohol and heroin dominated the neighborhood. LSD was also a problem, and cocaine was starting its wicked rise. Prostitutes were working a couple of street corners within three blocks of the church. Urban decay had clearly set in. Anybody who could make any money was trying to get away from our area. I despaired at the thought that my life might slip by without seeing God show himself mightily on our behalf. Carol and I didn't want to merely mark time. I longed and cried out for God to change everything. Me, the church, our passion for people, our praying. One day I told the Lord that I would rather die than merely tread water throughout my career in ministry, always preaching about the power of the word and the spirit, but never seeing it. I had heard the thought of just having more church services. I hungered for God to break through in our lives in ministry. I read this 20 years ago, and this, this phrase here on page 22 says, I despise at the thought that my life might slip by without seeing God show himself mightily on our behalf. And that phrase and this idea has stuck with me and has shifted the way I think and the way I approach life and the way I even approach God. Because it's, it is in me that, this, that we can't just, just do church, folks. 
We can't just talk about God. We need God. And I, I, I'm, I'm, I guess I'm so, I believe so much that God wants to work, that if all he looks for is just a man or a woman who just simply said, God, here I am. I'm willing. I'm available. And he'll work through that. But as simple as that sounds, it's hard to find. Because we tend to put so many conditions on God. I want you to do it this way, God. I want it to be like this. And so it put inside of me this desire. I want God to do what he wants to do. And I can't help but think about where we live and what's happening just in the natural here in the hill country. Those of you who've lived here a long time, you see it. You're aware of it and you probably don't even like it. But for me, the influx of people into this area shows that God's doing something. God's moving, and he's looking for people who will just simply say, yeah, God, I, I want to be a part of this, not just church, but actually something God wants to do. The problem is, I think we miss it, and we end up going through life not really seeing God work mightily on our behalf. There's a, an old fable about a Mr. Jones who dies and goes to heaven, I think illustrates this point. Listen to this fable. Peter is waiting at the gates of heaven to give Mr. Jones a tour. Amid the splendor of golden streets, beautiful mansions, and choirs of angels that Peter shows him, Mr. Jones notices an odd-looking building. He thinks it looks like an enormous warehouse. It has no windows and only one door. But when he sees, asks to see inside, Peter hesitates. You really don't want to see what's in there, he tells the new arrival. Why would there be any secrets in heaven, Jones wonders. What incredible surprise could be waiting for me there? When the official tour is over, he's still wondering, so he asks again to see the inside of the structure. Finally, Peter relents. When the apostle opens the door, Mr. Jones almost knocks him over in his haste to enter. It turns out that the enormous building is filled with row after row of shelves, floor to ceiling, each stacked neatly with white boxes tied in red ribbons. These boxes all have names on them, Mr. Jones muses aloud. Then turning to Peter, he asks, do I have one? Yes, you do, Peter tries to guide Mr. Jones back outside. Frankly, Peter says, if I were you, but Mr. Jones is already dashing toward the J aisle to find his box. Peter follows, shaking his head. He catches up with Mr. Jones just as he is slipping the red ribbon off his box and popping the lid. Looking inside, Jones has a moment of instant recognition. He lets out a deep sigh like the ones Peter had heard so many times before. Because there in Mr. Jones' white box are all the blessings that God wanted to give to him while he was on earth, but Mr. Jones had never asked. It's a poignant story. It's a fable, obviously. But in the book of Revelation, chapter 7, verse 17, it says, And God will wipe every tear from their eyes. I read that passage, and you wonder, why is there going to even be crying in heaven? But I can't help but think that the reason why God has to wipe away all of our tears is because in heaven, we're finally going to be able to see what our lives were supposed to have been. We'll be able to see what God intended. We'll be able to see what God wanted to do in and through our lives. And I think it will break our hearts because we actually don't live and haven't lived our lives the way God intended. See, Jesus said in Matthew chapter 7, verse 7, ask and it will be given to you. And James 4, verse 2 says, you have not because you ask not. Now follow this, because think of what he's talking about here. Because even though there is no limit to God's goodness, even though there's no limit to God's ability, even though there's no limit to God's provision, 
The Apostle James says, if I don't ask God for a blessing yesterday, then I won't get all that God, that I'm supposed to have here today. You follow me? If I don't ask yesterday for all the blessings, then I won't get today what it was that God wanted to give me. We have a part to play with this. And one of the things that I've noticed over the years of being a pastor, because I tend to think this way, that experience is a great teacher. But I'm so grateful it doesn't have to be your own experience. You may say amen to that one. (laughs) Experience is a great teacher, but I'm convinced it doesn't have to be your own experience. We can learn from each other. And one of the things that being a pastor is that I get involved into people's lives from birth to death and everything in between. And as a result, one of the things that it gives me is this perspective of how quickly life goes by. Nobody is ever planning to die. It just, it happens so quickly, and it happens faster than you think. James 4 verse 14 says, You do not know what your life will be like tomorrow. You're just a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes away. And so the thing that never ceases to amaze me is just how quickly life passes by, which means the reality is you can go through this life without ever tapping into the God vision that he has for your life. And that's one of the biggest tragedies that I see is that people just go through life without ever tapping into God's vision for your life. You can go through this life without ever engaging your faith. I mean, just think about this last week. How often did you engage your faith? How often did you just live your life based upon what you can do and your own abilities and strength and talents and resources? And how often did you actually engage your faith? And that's just one week. And weeks turn into months and months turn into years and years turn into decades and you never end up really engaging your faith. And as a result, you end up settling for much, much less than what God ever intended for you, for your life to be like. And so with whether you realize it or not, and whether this is what is your desire or not, you end up, your life ends up going by without ever seeing God act in greatness in your life. You miss out on the greatness of God, him showing himself mightily in your behalf. And therein is what I think is the tragedy. Tragedy to me is not whether your life is cut short. Tragedy to me is how you lived your life. No matter how long it is, did you live your life well? Did you live your life beyond your abilities, your talents, your giftings and resources? Or did you just live your life within the limits of what life set up for you? To me, the tragedy is when you just go through life, the same old, same old, without ever tapping into the great big vision that God has for your life. Proverbs 29, verse 18 says it this way. It says, where there is no vision, the people what? The people perish. Here's the thing, folks. Without a God-sized vision for your life, you're going to end up just coasting through life. You're just going to go through life without ever stepping into the greatness that God has for you, without a God-sized vision for your life. You'll just continue to live within the boundaries that have been set up for you. And as a result, you'll end up just throwing these haphazard, random, um, soulish prayers up to heaven, far less than what God 
intended for you to live, but with a God-sized vision for your life. That will become the catalyst for engaging your faith because God's vision for your life is bigger than what you can do. And so you don't have a choice but to engage your faith because without it, you're going to fail. If God doesn't show up with what he's put in your heart, this God-sized vision, you're going to fail. But with a God-sized vision for your life, it'll be a catalyst to engage your faith. And that's then when your prayers have a God-given target for you to hit. And that's when you'll start living your life with this audacious faith. If you don't hear me say anything else here today, I want you to listen to this. Because God never intended for you to live an ordinary life. God never intended for you to live an ordinary life. God always intended for you to live a life beyond yourself. That's what God has for you. So let me give you some legacy stoppers that will keep you stuck in the ordinary. Number one is a wrong view of self. A wrong view of self. Of self. And for so many people, this is such a huge issue because you have this wrong view of how you see yourself. I know for me, you've heard me tell some of my story over, over the years that, that this was one of the big things that kept me from even stepping in to the call and purpose on my life. Because you've heard me say this before, that I was one of those that never wanted to be a pastor. I'm one of the most reluctant pastors you'll ever meet because I always thought pastors were people who couldn't do anything else with their life. And so I didn't want to do that. That's not what I felt like I wanted to achieve. And so I had this really bad view of myself. And then even after I finally said, yes, God, I'll, I'll do this thing, it didn't change how I still saw myself. Because I thought, okay, this pastoring thing, all right, I can, I can learn how to love people. But this idea of having to preach on Sundays, hmm, not really a good one for me. Not a strength for me. You need to know that I'm not a loquacious person. I don't have a lot of words. Ask my wife. She knows that for certain. And so it tends that pastors usually have to preach. And so in my head, I'm thinking, okay, those of you know who Pastor Ross and Pastor Brent and Austin and, and Kyle, they are just naturally gifted. They can talk about anything and be fantastic about it. I, those of you who can do that, God bless you all. But for me, that is just not me. I don't have those natural abilities. And so the idea that I have to get up and preach every Sunday, okay, well, maybe I can figure out something to say for 52 Sundays. But that's only one year. 52 Sundays, that's just one year. And I, I'm going, I, I don't know that I can even get over that hump, let alone, okay, what, what do we do for year number two? I've just said everything I have to say. I'm done with my words. And so for the longest time, there was, I, there's no way, like, even though I was now being a pastor, I just mm, don't ask me to speak because I have nothing to say. And actually becoming a senior pastor where you have to do this all the time, I just said there's no way I can ever do this. And so I had this bad, wrong view of myself because of my limits, my personality, my temperament, my natural giftings and abilities. And, but what I've noticed is that, again, God wants to take you beyond these things. And if you have a wrong view of yourself, it will stutter what it is that God wants to do through your life. Because here's the thing. I've been pastoring now for 27 years. There's a lot of 52s in 27 years. But let me tell you something. Nothing's changed because tomorrow I still have no idea what I'm going to talk about next Sunday. Because I, after today, I will finish everything I ever want to say to you. 
and now I don't know what to say. And so what's caused me is that I have to take a step of faith every single week because it's not about me. It's something I have to rely upon God to do. Look at this in Psalms 18, verse 35. You give me your shield of victory, and your right hand sustains me. You stoop down to make me great. Listen, folks, this is what God wants to do in your life. This is what he wants to do. And so I want to stir up some greatness in your life. I want to call you out of that same old, same old status quo type of living. Because for some of you, you've been stuck in the ordinary because of insecurity. You're stuck in it because of insecurity. Who am I? I can't do this. Other people can do this much better than I can't do this. But let me tell you something. If you'll let him, God will set you free from insecurity. Some of you are stuck in the ordinary, this ordinary living because of fear. You're afraid. I'm afraid. What if I fail? What if it doesn't happen? What if it doesn't work? I know for me that, that was one of the big ones. Because you know when you become, when you're a pastor, you tend to have to pray for people. But my fear was, well, what if you pray and nothing happens? Hmm. Not so good, right? What if you pray for somebody? What if you pray for healing? What if you do this and it doesn't work? And so I would try to get out of every situation to pray for people because, number one, I didn't know how to pray. Number two, my prayers didn't sound very good. And number three, I was afraid that God wouldn't do something, that I would look foolish. And, of course, God would look foolish too, but more look, I would look foolish. And so my fears would just cripple me from doing it. I remember one mission trip. I went to Germany and... and uh, I very distinctly remember we were ministering on the streets, and there was a, a guy on the streets that was, who was um, handicapped. He couldn't walk. And, and I felt the, the compelling of the Holy Spirit start stirring up inside of me to go pray for this man. But in my head, I'm arguing because this surely can't be God because I don't want to do this. And what if I pray and nothing happens? Then I'm going to look foolish. God's going to look foolish. And so I have this argument with God for two hours. And I leave the street without ever praying for that man. And when I flew back to the United States, I had this conversation with me and God. And in this conversation, I settled this issue that no matter what, I'm just going to pray for people. That God, you're the, you're, the, you're the one that heals anyway. It's not me. You're the one who heals. You're the one who does the mighty thing. I can't, I can't create a miracle. God, only you can do it. And so I'm just going to say yes. Every single, I'm, just going to, I'm not going to ever say no again. I'm just going to keep saying yes. And let me tell you something. God wants to deliver you from your fears that are keeping you stuck in the ordinary. As well, some of you have been stuck in the ordinary because of inadequacy. Inadequacy. You're measuring yourself by yourself and comparing yourself to others. And as a result, you feel like you're just not good enough. And I want to tell you something, folks. If you'll let him, God will set you free from those inadequacies. Some of you are stuck in the ordinary because of reluctance. You know you can. You know you should. But you keep falling short. You're procrastinating. You have all these excuses. And as a result, nothing's changing in your life. But again, I'm telling you, folks, if you'll let him, God will set you free from that reluctance. Look what the Bible says about you. 1 Peter 2, verse 9. But you, knows the word, but you, you. There's not an escape clause in here. 
It's you, 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 you. It's not just the person sitting beside you. It's you. But you are a, look at the word, chosen generation. Think about that. God has chosen you. He's not just chosen the person beside you, the person in front of you. God's chosen you. And it's not like God's chosen everybody but Andrew Faust. It doesn't say that. Does it? It doesn't say that God has chosen everybody but Michelle. It doesn't, doesn't, no, it's like you, you, which includes Michelle, which includes Andrew. You are a chosen generation, a royal piece of the holy nation, his own special people. That's how God sees you. You are his special chosen person. That's how God sees you, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. And so to be a legacy kind of person, we have to get a right view of ourselves. And then number two, the second legacy stopper is having a wrong view of people. A wrong view of people, not just yourself, but you have a wrong view of then others. Because for, so, for some of you, people really bug you. Come on, you know what I'm talking about? I know you, you try to act like everything's okay, and you, you try to act like you love people. But the reality, if you're honest with yourself, that's how you view people. You don't view people as, as someone to be loved. You view people as something to be avoided, Right? And I get it, personalities are all sorts of difficulty, but listen, you'll never leave a legacy if you have a wrong view of people, because God always works through people. Matthew 9, verse 36, it says, when Jesus saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Now look at, look at how Jesus does this, because in this crowd are very difficult people. In this crowd of people are people that even wanted to kill him by stoning him to death. In this crowd of people are people that have this agenda that they are going to kill him and crucify him. But yet Jesus doesn't look at them from that view. He looks at them from the view of eternity, that their souls matter. He's not just looking at their personality. He's not just looking at his interaction with them. He's looking at them from its eternal perspective. And this, folks, is huge because there's only one thing that you can take to heaven with you. People. That's it. You can't take anything else to heaven with you except for people. And that's why we have to have, we can never forget that because the reality is Every single day here in the hill country, people are going to hell and people are going to heaven. And the decisions that you make today and, the de and how you live your life today and how you interact with people today will affect the percentage of people who are going to heaven and the percentage of people who are going to hell. We can't ever forget that. And then here's a third legacy stopper, and that is having a wrong view of God having a wrong view of God. And this one's huge as well. Because you've forgotten what happens for so many of us is that we forget that we serve this miracle working God. This one who's able to do exceedingly abundantly beyond what you could ever ask, hope for, or imagine. This is who God is. There are no limits to God, but we've forgotten that. And as a result, you're not dreaming these God-sized dreams anymore. You're just dreaming these dreams of what you can accomplish in your own strength, your own abilities, your own talents, and your own resources. 
And so instead of dreaming these God-sized dreams that are beyond you because you have a wrong view of God, you restrict and restrain and you put these limits on what you think is possible. But look at this in Jeremiah 32, verse 17. It says, Ah, sovereign Lord, you've made the heavens and the earth by your great power and outstretched arm. Nothing is too hard for you. Look what he's saying. Nothing's too difficult for God. And I need to remind you, Nothing's too difficult. Whatever you're facing here today, nothing is too difficult. God's arm is not too short to save you, to deliver you, to heal you, to provide you. There's nothing too difficult for God. And that's why we need to join with God to live a life beyond ourselves. Jesus said it this way in John 14, 12. He said, I tell you the truth. Anyone who has faith in me will do what I have been doing. He will do even greater things than these because I am going to the Father of all the scriptures in the New Testament. This is the one that rocks my boat more than anyone. Because I think about all the miracles that Jesus did, all the things that surrounded his life. But yet Jesus said, you will do greater things. You'll do greater things than even he did. Listen, folks, I want to challenge you to live your life in a greater things kind of way. I want to challenge you to believe for the greater things. I want to challenge you to pray for the greater things. But just like Jesus said, you can't do this without faith. You can't do it just in your own ability, your own talents, your own giftings, and your own resources, because it's beyond that. And so it's going to require faith on your part. Look at this story in 2 Kings chapter 3, verse 9. It says, so the king of Israel set out with the king of Judah and the king of Edom. Now let me just kind of set the, the scenario here, what was going on, because here in this this chapter, if you can recall, the nation of Israel split into two. You have Israel and you have Judah. But the same story is still happening. You still have them, either the nation of Israel or the nation of Judah, or both of them, or neither of them are following God, serving God. And, and so you have this back and forth relationship with God. And you have all these nations that are still trying to destroy them. And in this situation, the nation of Moab is, is trying to destroy them. And so they come together in kind of an alliance with the king of Edom. And so they start heading out towards Moab. And it goes like this. After a roundabout march, seven days, the army had no more water for themselves or for the animals with them. Verse 10. What? Exclaimed the king of Israel. Has the Lord... And that's how, that's, that's how it read, right? <laughs> Thanks, Spencer. I appreciate that. Has the Lord called us three kings together only to hand us over to Moab? But Jehoshaphat asked, is there no prophet of the Lord here that we may inquire of the Lord through him? Wise question, by the way. When you're, when you're, when you're hemmed in, when nothing's going that you do, let me just, let me, let me just say, seek God. <laughs> you better hear, you better hear from God. And so he, he brings that up. Oh, we need to hear from God, an officer of the king of Israel answered, Elisha, son of Shaphat, is here. And he used to pour water on the hands of Elijah. Jehoshaphat said, the word of the Lord is with him. So the king of Israel and Jehoshaphat and the king of Edom went down to him. Elisha said to the king of Israel, what do we have to do with each other? Go to the prophets of your father and the prophets of your mother. And so Elisha doesn't like the king of Israel here, so he just wants to dismiss them. No, the king of Israel answered, because it was the Lord who called us three kings together to hand us over to Moab. Elisha said, as surely as the Lord Almighty lives, whom I serve, if I did not have respect for the presence of Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, I would not look at you or even notice you. Not very reassuring words when you really need to hear from God. But I want you to notice there's three things in this story 
that teaches us how to have faith for the greater things. Because look at the next verse, verse 15. But now bring me a harpist. Now, I want you to try to think about what in the world is going on here. Lan, would you come on up here? I want you to get on the keyboard for me, if you would, please. Because I, I want you to try to picture what's going on here. Because here you have these three armies, probably hundreds of thousands of soldiers that have been marching en route to try to engage Moab so that Moab doesn't destroy them. They've been on this journey, been marching and marching and marching. Nothing's happening. Nothing's changing. And so they're out of water. The animals are out of water. That's how they're traveling and the people are out of water, and so they're to the point that people are going to die. Their animals are going to die. There is this difficult situation, and Elisha says, bring me a harpist. I mean, think of how ludicrous that sounds. What do we need a harpist for? I mean, you want some mood music here? Is that what you're saying here, Elisha? But I want you to notice something that happens here. Because there's something about music that God put inside of it that changes the atmosphere of something. Just a little bit begins to change the atmosphere of a room, of a situation. And so Elisha says, bring me a harpist. And the harpist began to play, and the hand of the Lord came upon Elisha. See, Elisha was teaching us something about faith that we need to understand, and that is faith is birthed in God's presence. Faith is birthed in God's presence. And listen, folks, some of you have no faith because you have no presence. Anyone, would you stop for a second? This is your life. And you've been trying to make decisions. You're trying to go forward without faith. Go ahead, Lane, keep playing. But it's God's presence that stirs faith up inside of you. And that's what's needed for you to live beyond the ordinary. Now, I can't give you Landon to go home with you. <laughs> Which means you have to create that atmosphere. You have to bring the presence of God into your situation, into your home. And if you don't, Faith won't rise up inside of you. And you'll just fall back into the same old, same old. Doing the same thing over and over and over again. Just sucking up air from this planet. But not engaging in the extraordinary that God has for you. So turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. And the things of this earth will go strangely dim in the light 
of his glory and grace. That's what he wants to do in you. That's what he wants to bring inside of you. Look at the next verse, verse 16. And he said, this is what the Lord says. Make this valley full of ditches. Now I look at this and I think it should say that God brought rain. That's what we expect. That's what we want to happen in those situations. God, we're seeking you. God, we're reaching out to you. God, I'm praying. We need a miracle here. And we think that the next verse should say, and God brought rain. But it doesn't say that, does it? What does it say? God said, dig. Dig. We're, we want the immediate. We want the rain. We want, I'm thirsty, I'm, I'm lacking, I'm going to die here, God, if you don't do something. And God says, dig. Start digging. Here's another secret of faith, because faith has to go beyond inspiration to participation. And here's why I think where so many of us miss what faith is, because faith still involves you. You'll see this throughout the Old Testament, New Testament. I wish I had time to be able to tell you even personal stories of how I've seen the truth of this, but God always brings us into the miracle. When you think about the blind man, when Jesus healed the blind man, he took the mud and he rubbed it on his eyes, and then he told the man to go wash. Why? Jesus could have just spoken it, and it was done, but yet he got the man involved in his miracle. Think of this feeding of the 5,000 people. Jesus had them separated in groups, and then he asked, anybody bring any food? Why? He didn't need to. He could have turned the stones into bread. He could have called food down from heaven. But yet he involved the people in the miracle. Listen, folks, some of you are just sitting around waiting on God. You're waiting for your miracle. You're waiting for that movement. You're waiting for that answer. But let me tell you something. God is waiting on you. God's waiting on you. And in the most loving pastoral way that I can tell you, you need to get up off your duff and start moving. You need to start moving towards your miracle. You need to start moving towards that vision. You need to start moving towards that dream. Get up off your duff and start digging ditches. Start moving. Why? Because faith has to go beyond inspiration. Faith requires your participation. And then look at these last verses, verse 17. For this is what the Lord says. You'll you'll see neither wind nor rain. I don't like this one either. Because God's saying, you're not going to see any signs. (laughs) You're not going to see any signs that God is moving. I don't know about you, but I sure want to see signs. I would really like it, God, if you would just, if I'm going to take this step, please show me a sign. If I'm going to say this, if I'm going to do this, boy, I need you to reassure me. I need, I, need to, I need to see a sign. But he says, you're not going to see a sign. You'll see neither wind nor rain. But look at the next phrase, yet. Huh. Don't you love the yets? I love the yets and buts and therefores in Scripture. <laughs> yet this valley will be filled with water, and you and your cattle and your other animals will drink. Here's the third point, and that is faith continues regardless of what is seen. Faith continues regardless of what is seen. And some of you are discouraged today and you feel like giving up. You've been praying and praying and praying and nothing has changed. 
and I felt like the Spirit of God wanted to speak directly to you and to your situation, don't give up. Don't give up on that dream. Don't give up on yourself. Don't give up on that person. Don't give up on that wayward son. Don't give up on that miracle. Because faith continues regardless of what is seen. Look at the last verse, verse 18. This is an easy thing in the eyes of the Lord. This is an easy thing in the eyes of the Lord. If you would, I want you to just close your eyes here. And I want you to just let that settle in your heart, in your spirit here. Because I want you to think about this. Because what would your life look like if you were freed from these expectations of others? What would your life look like if you were freed from the expectations that you have even of yourself? What would would your life look like to be freed of the hurts and the wounds and the addictions that are keeping you in prison? What, What would your life look like if you lived your life without any of those limits? Because I believe there's something inside of every one of us that wants to live our lives beyond ourselves, beyond the expectations of others. I believe there's something inside every one of us that realizes that our lives were meant for something more. And I believe that God really does want to do amazing things in and through your life because authentic Christianity is based on this legacy-building faith. It's what caused Peter to get out of the boat and to walk on water. It's what caused Peter and John to stop by that lame man and say, silver and gold have I none, but such as I have give I thee in the name of Jesus Christ. Rise up and walk. It's this legacy-building faith that caused the woman with the issue of blood to reach out and touch the hem of Jesus. It's this this legacy-building faith that caused the centurion to tell Jesus, just speak the word, knowing that his son who had died would be healed. That's what this legacy-building faith is all about. And it's for you, it's for me. This is not just something that was for people in the Bible. This legacy-building faith is the stuff that triggers ordinary people like you and me to start living with unusual boldness. It's this legacy-building kind of faith that has this confident disregard for the status quo and what's happening in, in the world today. It's this legacy kind of faith that causes you to live with an extraordinary life where you see God show himself mightily on your behalf. And so I've asked the worship team just to come up here to kind of flip the service around because you need the presence of God in your life. That's what changes everything. And that's where faith begins to rise up. And the things of this world, the worries, the concerns, the the challenges, the difficulties, all the people issues, the unknowns. It's in the presence of God that faith begins to stir and this other stuff begins just to slide off of you. Where we turn to God and we look full 
into his face, the one who's able to do exceedingly, abundantly, beyond what you could ever ask, hope, or imagine. And so if you would, why don't you stand to your feet and let's just, let's just take a moment here and let's begin to worship with that focus here, if you would. So we're going to end service differently because I'm going to have the worship team just continue to worship and the prayer team is going to be down here up front and there may be things that are going on in your life that you want somebody to agree with you. And let me just tell you, when the presence of God is in the room, like he is right now, this is where you want to step up. This is where you want to grab a hold. And so I'm not going to give you a dismissal. You can leave whenever you want to leave. And the team is just going to continue to worship. The prayer people are going to be down here to pray with you. And I want you just to grab a hold of whatever it is that God's stirring inside of you. So come on, let's just continue to worship. You're dismissed whenever you want to be dismissed. God bless you guys.